Let me ask you now, please, to open your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. And today we'll be reading verses 10 through 31. As we are going to visit together with Luke a street called Straight, which is where Saul of Tarsus begins to or continues to transform from being an enemy to an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And so we're in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and says, said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when brothers, the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, 
So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let us pray. Father, I do pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Speak to us, Lord, we are your servants, we are listening, and we ask that your word that goes forth out of your mouth will prosper where you send it and accomplish your purposes in us today. And we believe that in Jesus' name, amen. It is sometimes helpful when looking at uh, the Bible to compare parallel accounts of the same story. Parallel accounts are generally not identical. There are variations within them, but they can throw light on the meaning of the passage in which each occurs. And we know that Saul's testimony of meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road occurs in three places in Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 9, we find Paul talking to Jesus or asking Jesus this question, a very important question. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? In response, Jesus told him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. However, when we read Acts chapter 22, we find that Paul also asked a second question. This is an important addition to the story and a significant combination of ideas because these two questions form a sound basis for a strong Christian life. Many people approach Christianity on the basis of the second question only. They want to know, what am I supposed to do? And they want to come to church and be told what to do in order to live a good Christian life. And that's important. Nobody's denying that. But it's not primary. So they become great activists, and they run around doing many, many good things, but they don't ever sink their roots deeply into the truth. They become Christian activists, and they're uh, really uh, attracted to certain issues, whether they be social or cultural or moral or ethical, but they want to be about doing, 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 doing. On the other hand, a very important question to ask is, who are you, Lord? Who is Jesus? Who is he? And that has to do with the deity of Jesus Christ and the foundation for everything that follows that. Without the foundation, we run around doing things that appeal to us that seem to be good, but they're not necessarily uh, the Lord's plan for us. But having established that base, we also need to ask a second question, what shall I do? That's because God has appointed certain good works to be done by every Christian. But Paul got it right from the very beginning. He be began with the uh, question, who are you, Lord? But then he submitted himself to this one who was the Lord and quite properly asked, what is it that you shall have me do? And let me say this. Uh, in, a, in an emphatic way. You need sound theology. 
You cannot live the Christian life with any kind of maturity, any kind of foundation, unless you know who the Jesus is you're trusting in. And so any statement in the Bible about the person of Christ is theology. We seem to have an allergy toward theology in our culture. There seems to be um, sort of a response to that by saying it's dry, it's dull, uh, it bores me, I don't really want to be that academic about it, just tell me what I need to do. But just doing apart from knowing who Christ is does not a healthy Christian make. Uh, you can become a very reactionary, fundamentalist kind of uh, I don't want to say dead from the neck up, but I just said it. Anyway, we need to be grounded in sound theology. Theology is your friend. It's not your enemy. And so we have to know who the Lord is that we're trusting in. And the more we know who Jesus is and the more we see how wonderful he is and all that he is and has come to do, then we are more prepared to do what he tells us to do. And so Paul got that connection right away. But let's jump right into our text today because there's so much said here that I think is uh, extremely helpful. Luke um, begins to tell us in chapter 9 the consequences of Saul's conversion. And we begin to see a transformation already in his attitudes and character, which uh, started to become apparent. First, we see that Saul had a new reverence for God. Ananias was, of course, instructed by God to go and visit this new convert and minister to him and was told, Behold, he is praying. Uh, three days had elapsed since his encounter on the road with the risen Lord Jesus, during which he did not eat or drink anything. And he was abstaining from any kind of nourishment in order to give himself without distraction toward prayer. Very important for him at this stage. Now, it's not that Paul had never fasted and prayed. Uh, he was a Pharisee, for heaven's sakes. But the way he prayed as a Pharisee might be like the Pharisee in the temple who thanked God he was not like the sinner. Um, he probably fasted twice a week. But now he sees life differently through the lenses of Jesus and his cross. He sees that he's been reconciled to God. And consequently, he enjoyed a new and healthy uh, access to the Father. The Spirit witnessed with his spirit that he was the Father's child. And the content of his prayers we can only wonder at. Nothing said here, but I would guess he prayed a lot for the forgiveness of all his sins, especially his chief sin, which was self-righteousness and the cruel persecution of Jesus and his followers, and for wisdom to know exactly what God wanted of him, what he wanted him to do, and for power to exercise his ministry, whatever that would be. No doubt his prayers also included worship, and he poured out his soul in praise to God when he had been breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He was now breathing out prayer, and praise to God. The raging lion has been turned into a bleeding lamb. 
Still today, the fruit of conversion is always a new awareness of the fatherhood of God. J.I. Packer once said, if you want to know whether a man really gets and understands Christianity, the way you can know a man or woman, a boy or girl, is they make much of the fatherhood of God. That they understand and revel in the beauty of the truth of adoption in Jesus Christ. And so, Ananias, who becomes a big player as we continue in this, uh, is probably uh, one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. Saul had a new relationship to the church into which Ananias has now introduced him. And you're going to see how important community is. You're going to see how much being a member of a church and being a relationship not only to Jesus, but also with those who are believers and followers of him in a structured setting like the church helps. Had it not been for Ananias, Paul would have suffered greatly. Had it not been for Barnabas, as we shall see in a moment, Paul's ministry would have been a disaster. And so God placed these people, who are not the big league stars that ultimately Paul becomes, but are key people in the development of Paul's mission and ministry. And that is why we need to be connected to a church, in my judgment, in a formal way. My judgment matters little, but the Bible's judgment matters most. And the Bible does not see Christians who are not attached to a local church under the authority of uh, leadership, such as elders, and uh, accountable and responsible. And so the amazing thing is about Ananias is he's a reluctant hero here. He, he was... Uh, reluctant to go and do the follow-up work and his hesitation was understandable although R.C. Sproul said it was the greatest offense and affront to God that Ananias would report to him what Saul had been doing like God didn't know like he said well God don't you know who this is surely God knew who it was but Ananias had to get there like the rest of us and uh, Jesus repeated and, and, and I would have been exactly like Ananias. I would have uh, hedged a little bit about going immediately. But Jesus told him to go, and he added that Saul was his chosen instrument to carry the name before the Gentiles and also the people of Israel, a ministry which would involve much suffering for the sake of the same name. And so Ananias goes to Straight Street, which, by the way, is still in Damascus. It is the main east-west thoroughfare, and he goes to the house of Judas, not the one who hung himself, obviously, indeed to the very room where Saul was. There he placed his hands on him, perhaps to identify with him, and he prayed for the healing of his blindness and for the fullness of the Spirit to empower him for his ministry. Even more, I suspect, this laying on of hands was a gesture of love to a helpless, blind man who could not see the encouraging face that Ananias had for him. But he could feel the pressure of his hands. At the same time, it's always interesting to me, I had a brother who was totally blind, and of course he, he couldn't see light, darkness, nothing. I said, what is it, pitch black? He said, no, it's gray. Everything is gray. Can't see anything. 
And so when I would come in the room, or any person would come in the room, he couldn't see you, but he knew who you were. And how did he know? He listened to the way you walked through the house. And, of course, me being larger, I made more noise walking across the wood floor than my children would. But he could tell. And it, it, there's such a tenderness here with Ananias and his treatment of this murderer of God's people. And he calls him Brother Saul. Saul, my brother. That is a moving term. This may have been, have been the first words that Saul ever heard from Christian lips. And they were powerful words to him. And they were words of sort of a welcome into the body. It probably was music to his ears. He was the arch enemy of the church. Finally to be welcomed as a brother was a dreaded fanatic. Now to be received as a member of the family. Yes, it was so. Ananias explained how the same Jesus who had both appeared to him on the road and had sent him so that he might both recover his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and uh, he could see again. And after he was baptized, presumably Ananias administered the baptism, he received him visibly and publicly into the community of Jesus and only then did he, did he take food and after a three-day fast he regained his strength. Did Ananias prepare and serve the meal as well as baptize him? I would assume he did. I would assume that he provided great care for Saul. The next thing we are told is that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. He knew that he now belonged to the very company which had previously he had been trying to destroy with all his heart. And so he showed this plainly as he began to preach in the synagogues. What did he preach? He preached that Jesus is the Son of God. Now for Saul of Tarsus to say that, what a radical paradigm shift. We have a form of liberal theology in recent history which, in which the term Son of God has been changed to mean merely that everyone is made in God's image and that we're all God's children, we're all God's son, sons and daughters. With this definition, there have been liberal theologians who are quite willing to admit that Jesus is the Son of God. Of course he's the Son of God, they say. Everybody is a son or daughter of God. But that is not what the term meant to Paul. And it is not what the term meant on the lips of the Lord Jesus. The proof is that Paul was persecuted for his profession. Why would he be persecuted for saying this if all he meant by it was that Jesus is another human being made in God's image? Knowledge of spiritual things that is based upon the uh, uh, identity of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. That is, Jesus is God. God does not err. If Jesus is God, then Jesus does not err. Everything Jesus tells us can be trusted. 
If he tells us that God is a certain kind of God, we can believe it because he is God himself and he speaks truthfully. If he tells us, as he does, that the Bible can be trusted, that it comes from God, that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God, will be, being divine in nature, will never pass away, then we can trust the Bible. In a sense, nearly everything we know a spiritual reality is based upon the confession Jesus is the Son of God God himself very God of God our salvation is also based upon it because we value the value of Jesus's death is linked to his being God if Jesus were a mere man even if he were a sinless man his death could have only availed for himself it could not have been of infinite worth Besides, if he were nothing but a, sheer, a mere man, he would be sinful as other human beings are, and his death would be no different from the death of any other human being. But Jesus is not merely a man. He is a man. He is a man, and he had to be a man to die. He had to take on human flesh, at the same time being God as well as man. He died as God and thus accomplished what God alone could accomplish. The second thing that the text tells us that Paul preached is that Jesus is the Christ. What another mega huge paradigm shift. Paul preached that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was anticipated to come and promised in the Old Testament the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. Therefore, Paul began to prove from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He probably went back to the Old Testament promises to show that Jesus was the one whom God had promised. He was the one who was going to redeem and who had redeemed now his people. At one time, Paul's idea of Messiah would have been the same as the majority of the Jewish people living of his day. They thought that the Messiah was going to be a political figure who would rally the nation and drive out the Romans and their oppression. They thought he would reestablish an earthly throne of David. Jesus, of course, did not do that. He did not do that at all. Um, so the thought that the Messiah was going to be a political figure who would rally the nation, drive out the Romans, and reestablish the earthly throne of David was the common belief in the day of what Messiah would be and do. Jesus had not done that, so Paul must have gone back to the Old Testament and asked himself, if the Messiah was not the one whose primary function was to drive out the Romans, what was he to do? And I think at that point, and I'm speculating a little bit, probably Paul reflected on the word anointed and asked, where was the Old Testament uh, term anointed uh, for a specific function the answer would have been prophets were anointed priests were anointed kings were anointed and the people had been thinking in terms only of a political king but Paul must have realized that Jesus came also to fulfill a prophetic and priestly function Jesus must be a prophet and he's the last and greatest of the prophets I don't believe Paul wrote Hebrews but the author in that book says he was uh, that God in, spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many ways, in various ways, but in the last days he's spoken to us by his Son.
as we reflected on the Old Testament, Paul would have been able to say, since Jesus is the Christ, he is the final word from God to us. He is the one from whom we are to learn what God is like. Paul must have meditated and reflected on the fact that the priests were anointed as well. And he must have concluded, if Jesus is the anointed one, then he must be God's great priest. He must be the one who has to offer himself as the only true and perfect sacrifice for human sin. He offered himself once as a perfect sacrifice forever. Jesus was also a king. David was the greatest of the kings. But he grew old and he died and his throne was taken by another. Jesus rose from the dead to reign and live forever. When Paul got around to thinking about that, he probably reflected on his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And how Jesus said, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And so Paul began to see that as he was no longer his own master, that the rightful servant of the true king of Israel and the Lord of lords, this king, Paul's master, was sending him to the Gentiles. And so Paul began his ministry preaching uh, powerfully. Um, and so he spent several days in Damascus. He knew that he now belonged to the very company he had tried to destroy, he preached in the synagogues. We know what he preached, he told us. Um, people were astonished. He was the one causing such havoc in Jerusalem among believers. And he had come to Damascus to take them as prisoners to the chief priest. Luke does not tell us how their anxious questions were answered. Perhaps Ananias helped to reassure them. Meanwhile, Saul himself grew more and more powerful as a witness and an apologist to such an extent that he baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus was, was the Christ. However, Saul did not settle down with the Damascus Christians for any length of time, however. Luke goes on to describe how he left the city after many days, verse uh, 23, after many days had gone by. It is intentionally a vague time reference but we know from Galatians 1, verses 17 through 18, that these many days actually lasted three years, and that during this period, Saul was in Arabia, attending seminary. <laughs> Not really attending seminary, but more than likely he had his own private tutor uh, as he was alone in Arabia. Um, he didn't have to travel far because at that time the northwest tip of Arabia reached almost to Damascus. But why did he go to Arabia? Some think he went on a preaching mission, but I think more cogently we could say he needed time to be quiet, that Jesus now revealed to him those distinctive truths of Jewish-Gentile solidarity in the body of Christ, and which he would later call the mystery made known to me by revelation, my gospel, the gospel, I received by revelation from Jesus Christ. Some have even conjectured that those three years in Arabia were a deliberate compensation for the three years uh, with Jesus, which the other apostles had had, but Saul had not. At all, uh, 
At all events, after his time in Arabia, Saul returns to Damascus, but he did not get a happy welcome there. He began to see what he would suffer. The Jews conspired to kill him. Day and night, kept close watch on the city gates because they wanted to kill him. Somehow, Saul learned of their plan, and his followers, uh, he was already a leader apparently, lowered him in a basket through the opening of the wall so that he escaped Jerusalem. How humiliating of an escape could you have? Can you see Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, bent up in a little ball in a basket, lowered through a wall to get away? Uh, what a comeuppance or a come downance, however you want to say it. Now, let's talk about Saul and Barnabas a little bit because that's what happens next. Saul's experience in Jerusalem was very similar to his experience in Damascus. On his arrival in the capital city, he tried to join the disciples since he knew he was one of them, but they were filled with skepticism and fear. They were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Presumably, they had not heard of him for three years. But this time, Barnabas came to the rescue. True to his disposition and his name, he took him, his name means son of encouragement, he took him and brought him to the apostles, in particular to Peter and James, according to Galatians 1, verses 18 through 20, and told them how he had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and in Damascus had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. As a result of this testimonial, Saul was accepted as a Christian brother, he stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem during the two weeks we know that he spent there. Thus Saul was clear about his membership in this new community of Jesus. First in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, he sought out the disciples. True, both groups hesitated, but their initial skepticism was overcome. So we thank God for people like Ananias who introduced Saul to the fellowship in Damascus, and for Barnabas, who did the same thing for him later in Jerusalem. But for them and the welcome they secured for him, the whole course of church history might have been different. True conversion, let me emphasize this again, always issues in church membership. It's not only that converts must join the Christian community, but the Christian community must welcome converts, especially those who come from different religions, different ethnic or social backgrounds. The urgent need in the church is for modern Ananiases and Barnabases who have overcome their scruples and hesitation and take the initiative to befriend such newcomers. In addition to a new reverence with God and now relationship to the church, Saul recognized that he had a new responsibility to the world, especially as a witness. And according to his own count, uh, account of his conversion, it, it was already on the Damascus Road that Jesus appointed him as a servant and a witness. And indeed, that Saul was his chosen instrument. And Ananias passed on to Saul Jesus' commission for him to be a witness to all men of what he had seen and heard. Several characteristics of his witness is noteworthy. First, it was Christ-centered. In Damascus, Saul both preached, Jesus was the Son of God, Jesus was the Christ. Validated by arguments from the Old Testament. 
His preaching was focused on Christ, which is always the task of Christian witness. Our experience may illustrate who Christ is, but it must not dominate our witness to others. We're not pointing them to us, we're pointing them to Christ. Secondly, Saul's witness to Christ was given in the power of the Holy Spirit so that he grew more and more powerful. And it's no wonder for the supreme function of the Spirit is to bear witness to whom? Christ. Thirdly, his witness was full of courage. Christ, uh, I mean, Luke alludes to the boldness in his preaching, first in Damascus and in the very synagogues in which the high priest had, ad had addressed letters authorizing Saul to uh, arrest Christians and even Jerusalem itself. Fourthly, Saul's witness was costly. He suffered for his testimony as Jesus warned that he would. He said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so he goes through danger. Even in Jerusalem, some Hellenists tried to kill him as well. The whole rest of his life would be marked. He's a marked man, so to speak. So that Jesus warned him to leave the city immediately. His Christian brothers personally uh, took him down to Caesarea on the coast and sent him off by ship to Tarsus, his hometown, where he stayed incognito for the next seven or eight years. Thus the story of Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 begins with him leaving Jerusalem with an official mandate from the high priest to arrest fugitive Christians and ends with him leaving Jerusalem as a fugitive Christian himself. You don't find irony like that anywhere else except in the plan and wisdom and working of God. I heard something the other day that really help me in the moment we all feel the times we live in are pretty chaotic they feel it feels like things are out of control and that the center does not hold and that everything is being shaken up the problem is when we look at chaos we wonder where's God God is in control even though it looks like chaos to us it doesn't look like chaos to him I read a story of a minister in New Mexico whose uh, congregation was primarily Navajo and they decided to make him a, Christian, uh, a Christmas present and they decided to make him a rug, a beautiful Navajo rug. And so they were doing it in the basement of the church and the women were down there almost every day. And so one day the pastor knew he had heard they were doing this and he sort of made a mistake, went downstairs and he looked and he saw the rug and he said to himself, I, I don't know what I'm going to do when they give me this. This is the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Threads going everywhere, no sense of pattern, no sense of style, no sense of anything being coherent. There's no shape to it, nothing that made any sense to him. And he said, well, I better leave. So he left. Well, it came Christmas, as it usually do, do, uh, does. And so the ladies came forward to present him this beautiful Navajo rug. And when he opened the rug and they displayed it to the congregation, John 3.16 was woven into the rug and it was breathtakingly beautiful. And the pastor looked at that and thought, how did they get from what I saw to this? He had seen the underside of the rug, not the top side of the rug. We see the underside of the chaos. 
God, who's a God of order, is accomplishing his purposes in our world even now. And so Saul of Tarsus becoming who he became, the persecutor, now becomes the persecuted. And Luke will tell us more of his sufferings, how he was stoned in Lystra and left for dead, beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, uh, the center of a public riot in Ephesus, arrested and imprisoned in Jerusalem, shipwrecked in the Mediterranean, and finally held in custody in Rome. This man suffered greatly, and yet though his life looked chaotic, God used him to prosper the church. If you read the last verse, verse 30, you see a summary statement of how even though everything looked crazy with this guy, God's church was prospering. May the Lord prosper his people even now in our day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is comfort to us. It gives us hope. It points us to the only one who can help us rescue, save, deliver, uh, the one who can give us life, give us hope, give us peace, make things have any sort of semblance of meaning, uh, gives us purpose to get up every day, we pray that we might see ourselves as who we are in Jesus, that we might learn of him, who he is, and what he's done, and then be moved to do what he has called us to do. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.